0: The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter was launched 10 years ago on June 18th, and it's still orbiting the moon making fantastic observations. These observations will also help NASA get ready to send astronauts there by 2024. What have we learned from this amazing satellite? Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. This season is all about the moon. I'm here with Noah Petro, and he's the project scientist on a fantastic mission called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, or LRO for short. And today we're going to talk
1: about our changing moon. Welcome, Noah. Well, thank you, Jim. It's so great to be here with you today. Well, it's hard to believe that LRO launched almost 10 years ago now, June 18th, 2009. It launched from the Cape down in Florida, and its initial purpose was to chart the Moon in three dimensions, create a a 3D atlas of the Moon, uh, identifying safe, scientifically interesting places for future human and robotic exploration. And so its very simple goal, if it's simple at all, was map the Moon, find where there might be resources for us to use to sustain lunar presence, exploration, but also to just understand what's there at the Moon. Let's get the map of the Moon that we use to, to chart our path back to the lunar surface. And so it started with that maybe lofty goal. Uh, now 10 years later, here we are still at the moon. We've revolutionized lunar science thanks to LRO and its a suite of seven instruments.
0: Right, yeah, it's really been doing fantastic. Very healthy and uh, making, uh, making some fabulous measurements. I actually believe it's our most capable modern lunar mission ever.
1: What kind of instruments does it have? Well, you know the the instrument suite, seven instruments that basically allow us to to look at the moon through different lenses. We have, perhaps most famously, uh, our high-resolution camera, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter camera, or LROC. It has a camera on it that can take beautiful images of the lunar surface at a resolution that's completely unprecedented for the entire lunar surface.
0: Yeah, almost like the size of your coffee table is one pixel.
1: Absolutely, you could you could see things at the human scale. Yeah. But we also are mapping. Uh, the topography of the moon, we have the best topographic map of any planet in the solar system for topography the Topography is
0: the highs the, and lows, the right, heights. The, the shape of the
1: moon, right. the measure of the lunar surface, its roughness, uh, the temperature of the surface of the moon. You know, the lunar surface wow. is, is bathed in sunlight, so it bakes in direct sunlight, it freezes in lunar night and we can measure the wild temperature swings across the lunar day. We're measuring the radiation environment at and around the moon, uh, as well as measuring water uh, and its various abundances and, and presence across the lunar surface using multiple instruments. And so we have the seven instruments that we're using to map the moon and tell us really about the physical properties of the lunar surface and its environment. something that that we hadn't planned on was being there for 10 years and so we're asking new science questions every year how is the moon changing Uh, how old are surfaces and so we use those data to really understand what's happened at the moon not just today but you know four and a half billion years ago as well
0: yeah so why is the moon important for us here on earth
1: does it have a connection that helps support life well so that's a a really interesting question And, and i mean it goes back to the the earliest history of, of the Earth and the Moon system. Earlier on, you know, four and a half billion years ago, just after the Moon formed, it would have been much closer to the Earth uh, and has receded, moved away from the Earth over its four and a half billion years. You know, we're aware of the, the tides that the Moon exerts on the Earth when you go to the beach and the tide comes in and comes out. Well, four and a half billion years ago, that swing in tides would have been much greater. The Moon is bathing areas along the coastline of, of, of the continents, the nascent continents at the time in water, water's coming in and out, and creating these tidal marshes that would have the ingredients for life. 100s Hundred, of feet high. Absolutely, you know, you go to the right. Bay of Fundy, that's what was going on everywhere else on the earth. And so you have these environments that are being created because of the, the proximity of the moon to the earth. And so, you know, I think we can attribute in some small way the, 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 the flourishing of life in these wet environments because we have this, this wonderful moon. It's what makes the earth so unique in the solar system. It's having this large moon so close to the earth close to our planet.
0: You know it provides really another major advantage and that is it allows us to keep our rotational axis fixed. You know uh, like a top that spins and it has enough energy to keep its axis straight up. Uh, Some of the planets you know kind of spiral around that axis. Our moon has enabled us to keep it fixed and then The climate variations that we get on a yearly basis can be repeatable year after year after year. So it provides enormous
1: stability on our climate. You compare with the Earth to Mars, and and Mars has had wild swings in its climate over relatively short geologic periods of time. We don't see that on the Earth, uh, and so we have the consistent environment that allows life to flourish, as opposed to, say, what would have happened on Mars, where these wild temperature swings do not really uh, evoke an environment for life.
0: Yeah, that moving of the rotational axis is called the obliquity. You know, uh, what are planetary scientists learning from the
1: Moon from LRO? So one of the the basic, uh, fundamental insights that we're getting about planetary science, not just lunar science, is how a surface of a planet responds to being impacted, bombarded. Over its entire life, the Moon is being impacted by comets, meteors. And so we see this record preserved on the Moon. And when we look at other planets in the solar system, even Pluto or Mercury, you see the traces of impacts, or in the case of of the smooth areas on any planet, uh, the the few impacts that have happened there. And so we, we can tie the number of craters on a planetary surface, on any surface, to the age of that surface. And one of the things that geologists love to do is assign ages to things, what happened first, second, third. And all of that understanding of the sequence events ties back to understanding of what's happened on the moon. And so we're using the data from LRO to refine that understanding, better interpret the geology on any other object in the solar system.
0: Does that mean the moon is still being impacted?
1: To this day, every day, there are micrometeorites impacting the lunar surface. We see, in fact, you know, there was an observation of a flash on the moon during the eclipse on January 21st. And that was an incredible event because multiple people saw it. And so we know that these impacts are occurring. The camera, the high-resolution camera on Elro, actually is able to see by comparing images taken three years ago to images taken yesterday, detect those changes, new impacts. And that's an incredible opportunity to understand what a crater does to a planetary surface. The moon, with the absence of an atmosphere, the absence of wind, means that we see these impacts in essentially a pristine state, and we see exactly what happens. And we can calculate the size, the velocity of the the object that struck the surface, and through that, gain an understanding of what happens when uh, a planetary object is struck by a meteorite. We haven't seen the large crater yet. We're all eager to find the Kilometer-sized crater, boy. you know, <laughs> In our lo- Yeah, and the longer we're at the moon, the the, the chance of seeing it is increasing. A big impact. I would love mm-hmm. to see mm-hmm. that. I don't want to be anywhere near it. That would be a bad day. But I'd love to see yeah. it from well.
0: Than. You know, the moon is running block for us. That's there, right. You know? That's
1: right. And it's a it's a good blocker.
0: Yeah, it is. So so what you're telling me is the history of the solar system through this impacts uh, is really laying on the surface of
1: the moon. Yeah, it's, it's there for us to read. We, we've called the moon the Rosetta Stone, the cornerstone of understanding the, the history of the solar system. And, and because we have samples from the moon that we can tie to specific features, specific what we call geologic units, areas, we can apply what we understand about that one area to the rest of the moon. And so we, we have this record of the solar system, this, this incredible book preserved on the moon. And LRO is helping us uh, read that book. So is the moon still volcanically active? That's a great question, and before LRO, if you asked a planetary scientist, when did the moon cease to have volcanism? They would have said about a billion years ago. We see evidence now that there may have been volcanism on the moon as recently as 30 million years ago, which is geologically yeah, yesterday. right around the corner. Part of the surprise of this is finding these small features that appear to be geologically young, volcanically recent. Well, how do we have a, a small object that, that would have cooled relatively quickly have volcanism, sustained volcanism that long. And so we have to revise our models or better understand what our models are telling us about volcanism on the moon. And then again, applying that understanding across the solar system. Well, if we can have volcanism continue on the moon 30 million years ago, what does it mean for the volcanic history of Mars or Mercury or even Venus? And it's that kind of application of understanding what we're observing on the moon across the solar system that makes the moon so compelling.
0: Well, you know, the volcanic past of the moon Uh, is uh, largely seen uh, on the near side. You know, the large mari, the areas of huge impacts, that's actually a magma flow
1: that's Mm -hmm. flown in. What's the backside, the far side of the moon look like? And that's one of the biggest surprises. When we see the far side of the moon, we see almost in a complete absence, apart from very few areas, of a volcanic history. You know, the moon has these two faces. And, you know, I, I wonder if we had been Uh, in a situation where the far side of the moon was facing the Earth, that surprising discovery of of widespread volcanism on the moon would really have shocked people, in the same way that seeing the absence of widespread volcanism on the far side is a shock. So there's something going on there where we have the two hemispheres of the moon and they're telling us two completely different stories about what's happened in lunar history. Well, that's
0: the evolution of the moon we have to tease out. Some think that that the crust on the far side of the moon, which is thicker, Mm Hasn't allowed the magma to boil out and, and go through. But then I think if you look at the South Pole Aiken <laughs> Basin, this huge impact region with no magma in it, no volcanic material, maybe it's the fact that the gravitational pull by the Earth is moving the magma more towards the just a little near side. Yeah, something's going on there. We have to tease out. Well, you know, El Rock. Uh, makes some really fantastic high-resolution images of the Moon. And it's been seeing all kinds of things, but it's even observed some of the Apollo landing sites. This
1: is one of the most exciting early um, discoveries, if you will, from LROC, was imaging the landing sites and, and seeing these historic locations on the lunar surface. Uh, Being able to see the hardware that was left uh, on the Moon, the the descent stage of the lunar module. You can see the legs, you can see the shadow of the flags at at almost all of the Apollo landing sites still there. Uh, The rover for the last three Apollo missions still parked on the surface, as it was almost 50 years ago. And so we see these traces of our very recent exploration of the Moon preserved there. Um, it's quite remarkable and it's a wonderful connection to the recent history of lunar exploration uh, preserved there on the moon yeah you know,
0: what I liked is a, a couple of these of where you even see the backpacks as the astronauts go into the limb before they leave with with the with the landing legs still there as the rockets are fired off they throw their backpacks
1: off right and 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 for me, seeing those backpacks is a remarkable thing. Uh, my father built parts for those backpacks. Wow! And, and so there's a personal t- there's connection. An incredible personal connection. He told me a story that when they're finished building, putting all the pieces together, building the backpack, that there's a, a piece of structural metal in the in the backpack, and all of the engineers would etch their name into the the this metal. And so if someday someone goes to one of the Apollo landing sites, returns the portable life support system, the backpack, for display in a museum, and they uncover it. On there will be my, my father's totally recognizable signature, Dennis Petro, uh, <laughs> recorded on the lunar surface. Oh, that's wonderful. Well,
0: what's fascinating also about that is they got rid of the backpacks, mm-hmm because they wanted to make room for the rocks, right. the lunar material. So, so if you're
1: going to take weight up, you want to get rid of some weight, and that was an easy thing to do. Absolutely. You never need to use it again. You leave all that on the lunar surface, and you bring back the, the real treasure of the moon, which is the, the Apollo samples.
0: What are some of the other things about the moon that really
1: excites you that LROs uncovering? Well, you know, there's so many things about the moon that even though it's, you know, essentially in our backyard that we are just discovering for the first time now, thanks to LRO. And, and I think one of the things that's most compelling about the moon is the unique environment that we see at the lunar poles. Wow. You know, the, the, these very, very cold uh, areas uh, at the poles, some of which are the coldest measured temperatures in the entire solar system.
0: And that's because you can measure temperature. That's right, we can measure- From, from LRO.
1: That's right, the Diviner instrument on, on LRO can, can measure the surface temperature. And we see these very, very cold environments that, that have potentially water ice in them, uh, certainly have water that we've measured. It's a different environment, and I don't know that, you know, we we really comprehended how unique that environment is in our entire solar system. We have this deep freezer three days away at the poles of the moon, and, you know, who knows what's recorded in there. You know, billions of years of activity in the solar system, of lunar activities recorded and archived, uh, uh, there at the lunar poles.
0: So in other words if you had an ice cube and it sat on the moon and the sunlight was beating down on it, it would easily disassociate itself, turn into vapor and dissipate away. But in an area like a crater mm-hmm. that is hidden from the sunlight, this is the, the concept of permanently shadowed. Yeah. How do you guys yeah. figure out it's permanently shadowed?
1: So the, the really great thing is by having been at the moon now for so long we can image the moon repeatedly. We can make these high-resolution maps of the shape of the moon, and so we can either image places that are sunlight, not sunlight, dark, not dark, but we can also map the moon and get an understanding of the shape of the moon and propagate, we can plan, say, well, what's that going to look like in a day, two days, three years, 30 years, and so we can basically predict areas on the moon that will never receive direct sunlight, maybe receive direct sunlight for a few days as the moon slowly wobbles around the earth and around the sun, but we can... Um, and essentially, use our, our knowledge of the shape of the moon to understand what will be in darkness in the future, but also how that darkness may have been a million, a billion years ago, how it propagates throughout geologic time. And so, we, we develop this understanding of the sort of how the environment at the poles has evolved over the entire lunar history and how it will evolve. It's especially important for future exploration. If you wanna go to the poles, you need sunlight to power your batteries, to power your rover, what have you. Uh, You wanna be in sunlight, but maybe you wanna go into an area that's been in permanent shadow for a billion years, we can tell you where to go.
0: And it has a resource. It's got water, water H2O. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be used for a variety of things. You can drink it, you can you can breathe it, you know, disassociate it, but you can also
1: use it for rocket fuel. Yeah. So it's like a fuel depot. Absolutely. And it's sitting there on the surface waiting for us to to tap it, to, yeah. to understand it. Yeah. Now when
0: you talk about the shape of the Moon, mm-hmm. you know, it's spherical, but in actuality, gravitationally,
1: Oof. it's not spherical in the sense that it's uniform everywhere. What's that all about? So, you know, the, the phrase that we like to use is, is lumpy. It's not a very technical term, but mm-hmm. the, the Moon's gravitational field is irregular. We know that there are areas, particularly under those volcanic lava flows on the near side and underneath these large impact craters that have uh, they're called uh, mass concentrations, mass cons. And so the gravitational pull under those areas, because it has so much more mass, is a little bit greater. And so for an orbital spacecraft, you know, they're constantly getting pulled by these concentrations of mass. And so uneven gravitational field can make it very difficult to stay in lunar orbit for long periods of time. Now LRO's been able to do it because we've Found ourselves in a really elegant uh, orbit that goes low over the south pole, high over the north pole, where the the constant tugging of the gravity of the moon is a little bit subdued,
0: or averages out yeah. in some way, yeah,
1: so that you can find a stable orbit and, and, and allows us to be there for so long. But you know, past missions that stayed in in a lower circular orbit that passes you know 50 kilometers over the whole surface of the moon they could only stay there for a few months if they didn't do constant maneuvers. And so, uh, you know, we stayed in this low orbit for a period of time early in our history and then went into this more stable orbit so that we could have this wonderfully extended mission.
0: Well, you know, it's still there and it's still working great. And there's a variety of uh, new space agencies coming along that want to go to the moon. They want to land on the
1: moon. Where do we fit in? Are we helping them? Absolutely. So the wonderful thing about our data is, first of all, it's made available to the world, not just to scientists, not just to American scientists, but around the world, on a relatively short timescale. And, and we're excited for the opportunity to, to work with partners to get you know, to support their identification of safe landing sites. And so our data is made publicly available. We've worked with uh, international agencies uh, through uh, agreements through headqu- NASA headquarters to, to say, well, okay, you want to go to the surface, you want to go to this particular location, we'll provide the data to you and everyone else so that you can plan the best possible mission to the lunar surface. And we're really starting to see that come to fruition and, and hopefully in the very near future, uh, we'll, we'll start to see some, some of these partners uh, get to the lunar surface. Yeah,
0: so we're, we're partnering with a variety of commercial entities mm-hmm. that want to land on the moon and, and we want instruments on those spacecraft and, and landers and even rovers. They're going to be needing LRO data, so keep it healthy, Noah. Absolutely, well, every day, <laughs> I'm I mean, thinking it, how you know,
1: we can how can we keep this mission going um, because I cannot wait for the chance to, to get one of these landers, get a rover on that we have an instrument on, and make coincident observations. It's a great opportunity for joint science between LRO, uh, the Artemis mission, and, and once we get to that point, that will be a really exciting new era for lunar exploration. Well, your own personal research uses uh, multiple data
0: sets. Uh, how does that help our understanding of the moon, and what are you doing in, these, in this area? Well, what
1: excites me the most, particularly about the moon, is that we have samples. We've got chunks of rock from various locations on the moon. And what I really enjoy doing is looking at these Apollo landing sites and saying, well, let's take all that we know about this one area uh, from orbit. So we take the high resolution images and we take the data that we get from other instruments. And, and let's put those samples that we got into a context of the remote Yeah, datasets. you know where they came from. We know exactly where they came from. We say, well, this rock came from this point. And how can we use that information to better understand what happened on the other side of the moon? Mm-hmm. So we look at the Apollo 17 landing site and the boulders that were sampled there. Where do those boulders come from? And we can trace, thanks to those high resolution images, how those boulders roll down the hill. Okay. Where did that hill come from? <laughs> where is it ejected from a basin a thousand kilometers away? Okay, well, where did that come from? And so we start unraveling the history of the moon using the remote data and the samples together. And that really helps tell us this, this comprehensive story of the you know quite simply the last four and a half billion years of, of lunar evolutions. Well what was your biggest surprise from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter? Well, so far, and there have been a number, and every day I feel like I'm being surprised by the latest discovery. (laughs) But honestly, for me, it was the identification of these LRO-era craters, seeing changes on the lunar surface. And, you know, for my entire career, we were we're trained with this thought that the moon is the static object in the sky. But now we can actually quantify changes on the lunar surface. Every instrument on LRO has detected changes in some way, whether it's a new crater or it's the change in abundance of water on the surface. Uh, we are able to see the Moon changing gradually beneath our philosophical feet on the spacecraft. And so the Moon is still largely unchanging, certainly nowhere as dynamic as the Earth or even Mars or Venus, but we are able to quantify how it's changing. And that's important because, well, it tells us how the planet is working, how the Moon is working. And again, by extending that understanding to other objects in the solar system, we know that other things are changing as well. And, and by understanding the changes that are occurring on the moon, we, we can better understand the dynamics on any other object in the well, solar system. Well, you
0: know, to, for me, what was really exciting about the LRO observations, as we study uh, study the surface of the moon in great detail from orbit, we're finding new features, things mm-hmm. that we call like
1: skylights. Yes. Things that we call like swirls. Mm-hmm. What are those? So yeah, the skylights and the swirls are this great group of surprises on the moon. The, the skylights are these collapsed lava tubes where we. Get a glimpse into what may be a very extensive lava flow that once went underground and is now a tube and so we see into these areas huge these voids that may be you know kilometers wide yeah. hundreds of meters deep and these are micro environments we talked about the environment of the poles of the moon well these skylights these lava tubes are going to be their own unique environment they're getting heat that's coming from the deep interior of the moon percolating up through the crust Uh, They're going to have a reservoir of the gases that have been floating around the moon, but also a lunar surface that's not been exposed to solar wind, what it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. Then you talk about these swirls. Swirls are these amazing expressions of magnetic fields on the the lunar surface that have kind of protected the moon from getting a sunburn, if you want to think of it that way. And there are these wonderful, wispy features that have been, you know, sort of anomalous for you know, the better part of 50 years since we've really been able to image them at high resolution back in the 60s to now these really interesting dynamic environments that, boy, are just begging to be explored. Are there any misconceptions about the moon uh, that you're particularly interested in correcting? Uh, Absolutely, you know, I love talking to the public about the moon, and there's a misconception that, well, we've been to the moon, so we know everything. And I think as we've talked about now, there are so many wonderful mysteries that are are important for understanding not just the moon but the entire solar system recorded on the lunar surface so i think the most important misconception is that we know the moon well we know a little bit about the moon just enough to be dangerous and just enough to tell us that there's a lot of really interesting and compelling places to go what's next for you in the with respect to lunar exploration well you know as you said before what's next is keeping lro alive we are in the process of proposing for more operational time at the moon, but we would love to see some missions come join us. And so we're, we're supporting these commercial landers. We want to see them get to the surface successfully and conduct good science. And we'd love to see other NASA-led missions get to the moon as well. And so you know, we're trying to put together a case for what we can do, uh, not just on the lunar surface, but from lunar orbit as well as I'm really excited to see what happens with, uh, you know, continued study of lunar samples. And so personally, I'm trying to um, combine all of these interests of mine, the understanding of of what happens and what we can tell about the moon from orbit, but also what we can learn from the samples. And so tying all those things together uh, is what keeps me busy, but also engaged and excited about what's to come with lunar science.
0: You know, I always ask my guests what happened in their career, what happened when they were young that got them excited about being a planetary scientist, that really accelerated (laughs) them forward to become the scientists they are today. So, Noah, what is your gravity assist?
1: I had multiple gravity assists, like many successful missions in in the NASA portfolio, and I, I talked about my father's involvement with Apollo And that was this moment that sort of, oh, you know, there's a human face to exploration. That's really interesting. And that got me interested in NASA. In high school, I had some of the best science teachers you could ever ask for. In particular, earth science teachers, geology teachers, who got me passionate about understanding the earth and what rocks can tell us about the history of the earth and what our understanding of the earth means for our knowledge of how the solar system works. So I went off to college thinking I'd become a high school science teacher. And really? early in my first, yeah, and because uh-huh. I because I saw those teachers having so much fun, I said I wanted to do that. <laughs> I had a professor who stepped in to teach a, my intro geology course for a week, uh, my freshman year, and he said, we're gonna talk about the moon for this week. And I thought, <laughs> wait a minute, you can do geology on the moon, and that was Professor Gene Clough, and he says now that you know the first day that I had that class, I went up and, and talked to Noah, and we haven't stopped talking since. And and that opened my eyes to the idea that you can do geology on other planets, particularly the moon, which I was really Mm -hmm. interested in. And learn a lot. And that put me on that path, and and Gene encouraged me to apply for summer internships, which I would not have done otherwise, and so I really took his, his mentorship to heart. And one of those summer internships, I ended up working at the USGS in Flagstaff with Lisa Gaddis, and she said, well, you know, no, if you like this planetary science thing, why don't you think about going to work with Carly Peters at Brown? I said, OK, Lisa, <laughs> I'll, I'll do that. Sure, I always wow. do what I'm told.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> and then
1: I went off to work with Carly. And of course, at that time, this is 2001, lunar science was you know, one of many fields, sure. but Mars was a really hot object Mars at the was time. Hot, yeah. And so I was this outlier. I've always been an outlier, but I was really an outlier then. Oh, you're interested in the moon. And so I've had these people who just nudge me in the right direction, give me the advice that I, I needed to hear, and I've taken it. And that's what's got me to this, this day. It, you know, it's not one thing in particular, but all of these little moments in life that have just pushed me in the right direction.
0: Well, Noah, I really want to thank you for spending time with me today to talk about the moon because this is the year of the moon. 2019. Yeah, and you and LRO play a major role in it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim.
2: Hey, Gravity Assist listeners. This is producer Liz Landau. Our friends over at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center are working on a new podcast called NASA Explorers Apollo, a series about the people behind past, present, and future lunar science. They've also been collecting stories from people like you, reflecting on the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. If you'd like to share your story, record an audio clip and send it to Apolostories at mail.nasa.gov. We'll end today's Gravity Assist podcast with a memory from a listener named Ginny O'Donnell in Danville, Kentucky who tells us about her homemade, moon-made, lemonade, and Kool-Aid. Hi, NASA. It's me, Ginny. You know, 50 years later, um, I got in such trouble after the moon landing. So here's what happened the morning after. My brothers, Bucky and Monty, and my next-door neighbor, Melissa, and our friend, Reedy, and I decided to celebrate with a lemonade stand. And we used up all of my grandmother's aluminum foil to make space helmets and Moon Maiden uh, antenna. Remember the Moon Maiden from Dick Tracy? So she was really beautiful and we loved her. And then we uh, made lemonade and Kool-Aid using all of my grandmother's Sugar and um, we set up our stand on the side of the road and we uh we called it homemade, moon made lemonade and Kool Aid. And we thought we were just the best and the smartest kids on the whole planet Earth until my grandmother got home and my goodness, she was not happy. We had used all of her precious aluminum and all of her precious. Sugar and goodness knows how many lemons, and you know, those little packets of Kool Aid that were um, just stashed for special occasions. I don't reckon I sat down for a week, but anyway, um, I love this memory of the moon landing so much, and every 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 year when this comes up, I think of it as the homemade moon made lemonade and Kool Aid, and just I cheers all of my little friends who helped me make it happen. So happy 50th, NASA, love you, Jenny.